You're listening to Dynasty by Decade, presented by DraftKings and the Hockey Podcast Network. Download the DraftKings app now and use promo code THPN at sign up for exclusive offers. by decade presented by DraftKings. Jim Taddy here from Leaf Sky. And I'm Rick Cole from 50 years ago in hockey. Our topic is the Toronto Maple Leafs in the 60s where they won four Stanley Cups, three in a row, and haven't won one since. I hate to remind people, going back to 1967, which is a considerable drought. But, you know, when you look back on, on the 60s, I just wanted to sort of clarify things for people to sort of do a deconstruct on how you look at this because there are some subtle differences from then to now. Although we have a Canadian division in the NHL, Rick, then there were six teams in the NHL and you played each other. Let's do some math here. What, 14 times, right, to get to 70 games? 14 times every year, and uh, some of the players I've talked to from that era told us that some they sort of got sick of playing everybody so many games all the way through. Uh, other subtle differences are uh, the backup goaltender was not dressed on the bench until the 64-65 season. So when we That's refer right. to Don Simmons replacing Johnny Bauer, he wasn't sitting there waiting with a jersey on. In fact, I I might suggest that he actually got the sweater off Johnny's back and went in and used the same jersey and, and played goal. But he's a relevant point to the early 60s. And then later on, when Terry Sawchuk arrives, they were on the on the bench. They had the backup on the bench. So that's, that's a different world too, isn't it? Completely different. In fact, they changed that because they were starting to try and get the national TV deal. And network executive says it's Bush League to have to wait around for a goalie to dress and interrupt the game. Well, and sometimes you didn't even know who the goalie was. He was a, <laughs> he was a, what we would call a guy sitting in the stands having eating some popcorn. And he'd have to rush down and get dressed and warmed up. You know, that was a dream of the kids was throw your goalie pads in the car because they might call you down from the stands. And Ed Chadwick, my old friend, said that that was his job as a 16 and 17 year old playing for St. Mike's. He was the designated backup goalie for the Leafs in those days. That's what a junior goalie did. And and so last year with David Ayers, with the Leafs in Carolina, we had a throwback occurrence. Now that was, I'm not going to say it was a regular occurrence in the NHL back then, but it did happen a lot. And of course, if you're watching on TV uh, and you and I would have watched on hockey night in Canada, uh, you Mm -hmm. saw the guy that searched for the guy, the guy getting dressed and warmed up. And then you, then you spent the rest of the night trying to figure out who this guy was. Yeah, the first one I actually saw that did that was Dave Dryden. And he was in the stands playing, you know, junior in Toronto. And he was the backup, and he went in to replace Gump Worsley for the Rangers. And that was the first. Oh, that was was really, I just, you know, you start thinking, what would I be doing if I were that kid in there? It was just, you know, beyond anything any of us could even comprehend. But he did well. The other thing is, for for viewing purposes for Hockey Night in Canada, uh, when the decade, the 60s starts, the games go on the air at 9 o'clock. The game started at 8. They went on the air at 9 o'clock. And the rule of thumb was when you tuned in at 9 o'clock, 
Uh, you didn't know what the score was unless you were crafty enough to listen on radio, but uh, you could be walking into the start of the second period, or if they were in the intermission, you knew that two things had happened. There was either a massive fight or a lot of goals <laughs> had been scored, and that's why it took so long, and that's why you weren't sort of splicing in to the second period on an 8 o'clock start and a 9 o'clock television open. Yeah, ritual between me and my dad watching those games was guessing what the score would be. Yeah, well, and so uh, <laughs> I had a little campaign in my house because I was the only hockey fan. And so <laughs> I learned to go in the kitchen and crank the radio so loud that they eventually, I wore down my parents and they let me watch the game because I was disrupting what they were doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we. I was lucky being in a hockey household. And I did start listening to the radio and then correctly guess the score. And my dad got onto that pretty quick and forbid me to. So yeah, it had and, to be an even fight. <laughs> And then, and then the next layer of, of uh, technology advancing was they would put the games on on an 8 o'clock start at 8.30 so that you could see the end of the first period. And yeah. this, was, this was a big bonus, right? We just, I just loved when they came on like that and you'd see the scores. And what I liked is I hope there was a lot of goals because I just loved watching the replays in between the periods. Yeah, which is interesting <laughs> because they didn't really have a replay machine that's back right. then, but they, they they came up with some way to show you what had gone on. But anyway, so that's that's a scene set on on the early '60s when the Leaf Dynasty starts, and we'll go through uh, the four Stanley Cup wins next. You are listening to Dynasty by Decade, presented by DraftKings, Jim Taddy, and Rick Cole. You're listening to Dynasty by Decade, presented by DraftKings, the leader in daily fantasy sports. Use promo code THPN at sign-up for exclusive offers. Dynasty by Decade, presented by DraftKings, continues Jim Taddy and Rick Cole with you going through the Leafs' run to get to their great decade of the 60s with four Stanley Cups, three in a row. So, Rick, let's go back to... Uh, the 50s. In 50-51, the Leafs win a Stanley Cup. In the previous decade, they had won five in the 1940s, and so this this was a machine. I'm not going to call it a dynasty because, uh, you know, there's another thing that changes over the years. Uh, your dynasty ended when you stopped winning the Stanley Cup. You know, the, if you won three in a row, that was the dynasty, and the next year, if you didn't win, the dynasty was over. That's not how we look at things today, is it? Correct. They, it was a different era than completely, and Nowadays, if you've won three out of seven years, some people are calling it a dynasty as long as you made the playoffs every year. Yeah, it but was, now it's totally disposable. So I, I like, like I've done some <laughs> research. I know you have, and, and I call this when people show up in the movie. And and so the Leafs are coming out of a great 40s decade. They win to start the 50s, and uh, then they don't do so well. They lose in the first round. They're out. There's a, a series of first-round losses out, out, uh, and then Punch Imlac shows up later, in the, very late in the decade, and so do a number of other players. But the original part of this is there's there's some carryover from the 40s, and some new people show up that are going to be around for quite some time, like George Armstrong and Tim Horton. There's development with uh, the Pittsburgh farm team and the American Hockey League. People are coming in uh, through St. Mike's and uh, also through the Marlboro franchise, the right. junior franchise. And, and, you know, as we know, that that's how they, you, you got players. You went out and signed them at a very young age and developed them. 
it was it was really interesting after they lost to Detroit in 52 only one year after Burkle's goal uh Hap Day was the general manager and and Smythe uh, Con Smythe and Hap Day sat down and said we've got to get people out there and getting these kids and they just started signing kids to what they called the C form and you were 14 or 15 years old when they did that to you uh and they would literally show up at your house if you were uh, a bird dog had informed them that one of the scouts, Bob Davidson, would show up at your house. Uh, they did this with Ed Chadwick, whose dad made $30 a week. And Ed told me this week that the guy came in with $101 bills, slapped them down on the table and said, we want to sign your kid. And $101 bills in the early 50s looked like a million bucks. And the dad said, hey, you're going to St. Mike's school. And that's where Ed ended up. That would be that would be quite a scene for somebody to open up a, like a handful of all those dollar bills. I mean, money was scarce to say the least. Oh yeah, and thirty dollars a week was Ed said. You know, he thought he was making decent money. His dad did so. It was uh, quite a quite a scene in the kitchen table, and that happened a lot in a lot of kitchen tables around Ontario. Yes, yes, it did. And, and the other thing that happened was if they really, really liked you and you were of a certain age, they might sponsor your entire team just to get their hooks on you, wouldn't they? That's how they got Dave Keon out of Quebec, was they actually sponsored the team because the Red Wings were going to sign Dave Keon. Yeah. And the Leafs sponsored the team so they could get him. <laughs> There's some interesting, you know, when you go back over the history that, you know, when you look at Ted Lindsay and Red Kelly and, and Dave Keon, the Red Wings got the, the Lindsay Kelly part of the early part of the deal anyways, by mm -hmm. by scooping them. Those, those should have been Leaf players and, and Dave Keon should have been a Red Wing, but the Leafs scooped them. So there's, I mean, I always consider Toronto and Detroit to be like brothers. Uh, because th there's a lot of trade-off there and there's a oh, lot yeah. of, uh, if you didn't get them that, then the other guy did. So it's fascinating that way. So we talked about how they would uh, come in. There's no draft, as you said, there's no draft. So you had to go get your own basically. Uh, and, and the other thing that that's sort of common through the fifties is, uh, con Smythe, no matter who the general manager is, con Smythe is the co-general manager. Uh, he's the owner of the team. And, and that's how a front office in the original six worked. The owner had a lot to say about everything. And the general manager worked in concert with the owner instead of the layers that we see today. That's exactly right. In fact, in the mid fifties there, just before Imlac came along, they'd had, they'd hired Howie Meeker to be the general manager. They kicked him upstairs from coach to bring Billy Ray in to coach and Meeker lasted about six months and they booted him out. And the committee known as the silver seven actually ran the leaf team until Imlac was brought in as assistant general manager. And then he took about three months before he booted up Billy Ray and took over as GM coach. Yeah, there's an interesting power, uh, I guess, change throughout the 50s. Joe Primo starts as coach, Camp yeah. Clancy, Meeker, Billy Ray. But when Punch Imlac rolls in the door, uh, if you're making, if you're doing a movie script, this is the lead character. He oh, yeah. walks in the door and literally changes everything, doesn't he? He, he did. They they were impressed with him when he came in and they made him assistant general manager. And he uh, was asked to relieve Billy Ray of his duties when he first went into coach. And Punch said, I can't fire him. I'm not the general manager. I'm the assistant. So they said, well, now you're the general manager. And within about a week and a half, I think, Billy Ray was out the door. But they didn't want Punch to coach. Or Punch didn't want to coach. The guy he wanted to coach the team was Alf Pike, 
who was coaching Winnipeg at that time. But Alf Pike couldn't get his release from Winnipeg to go to the Leafs unless the Leafs sent the Winnipeg Warriors of the Western League several players. Well, Punch wasn't going to do that, so he took the job himself. And the rest is history. It worked yeah. out so well for, I want to say, at least a decade, and then it started to sort of spin out of control. But in that decade, big things happened. So when Punch shows up, he uh, he clarifies the goaltending situation. Uh, it went from Rollins to Lumley to Chadwick, and then Johnny Bauer shows up in, in 58-59. Um, he also uh, acquired Red Kelly. He also brings in Alan Stanley. And I don't know if I'm missing anybody there, but there's some hey, Burr Olmstead for, for a short time. He brought in some guys, that, and this is where it's similar from today. When you look back on a Stanley Cup winner now, you can see the add-ons. And Maple Leaf fans will understand that when you go through the current roster with Spetsa, Thornton, Simmons, and now Nick Foligno, these are add-ons to a core. And that's really what, what happened in the 50s and early 60s for the Leafs, isn't it? Well, that's exactly what the Leafs are doing these days. Is they're, they're following that blueprint that, that Imlac actually set up. Punch went in there, and, and he had the good young core, the Dick Duffs, the Billy Harris, Bob Pulford, Bobby Bond, Carl Brewer, Tim Horton, all came up through the Leafs system, but they were missing just a couple things. Now, they tried back in 57 to bring Ted Kennedy back to show the kids how to win, but Ted was not really interested in playing anymore, played 30 games and then re-retired. But they brought in Olmstead. They drafted him from Montreal. Montreal didn't protect him. They brought him in, and he was there. He was a de facto assistant coach to punch, even during that first cup run in 62. And he was a guy who actually taught those youngsters what it took to win a Stanley Cup, I think. Yeah, it's funny that all these years later, I mean, it's the same template. And when you look at the, the blue line <laughs> yeah. specifically, you have Brewer, Bond, and Horton all produced from the Maple Leaf system. And the missing piece was was uh, Alan Stanley, and he's added yeah. in there. And all of a sudden, you know, there's, again, the, one of the other differences is the rosters aren't as big. You'd be lucky to have five defensemen on an NHL roster back then. And number five didn't see much action. It was the big four. And adding Stanley with uh, Horton and Brewer and Bond just solidified the blue line it was as good as anybody had. It, it was the, the best blue line core. That, it was almost like the Montreal blue line of the 70s. These four guys were, were dominant. And Stanley, they got in exchange for a guy named Jimmy Morrison, a really nice hockey player, but he just wasn't the guy that Stan, that Alan Stanley was. And uh, Tim Horton and, and Stanley would just seem to mesh together so well. Stanley uh, told me once at, at one of the Leaf alumni dinners that, that he and Horton just knew where each other was going to be at all times. And he said, I didn't even have to look to know where the puck was going to be. It was on my stick. Well, and Tim Horton, uh, you know, un unfortunately had a, an early end to his life, and most people associate the name with uh, coffee and, and donuts. But Tim Horton, if Gordy Howe was a defenseman, his name would have been Tim Horton. No question about it. Tim was Tim was a rock solid guy, and uh, he was probably the strongest man in hockey. Derek Sanderson once said that he got in a wrestling match with Horton, and Horton put a bear hug on him, and Derek just about lost consciousness. <laughs> I I think that when I haven't seen the footage lately, but I think that when Gordy Howe skated by Tim Horton, they just nodded at each other and kept going. <laughs> I think there was a lot of that in the fifties and sixties. There was a respect there that uh, you don't quite see it that way these days. I think. 
So we're talking about uh, astute player acquisitions, and we got into Alan Stanley. Uh, the Johnny Bauer one was another astute one, and Johnny Bauer uh, obviously had Hall of Fame credentials and wound up in the Hall of Fame based on what he did for the Leafs, and that's another fine pickup. The other one, which is just uh, almost absurd in how good it was for the Leafs, is Red Kelly from Detroit. That that was pro- that was probably to me the the a stroke of genius. Kelly'd been traded to the Rangers by the Red Wings uh, in a deal that would have brought uh, Bill Gadsby and Eddie Shack to Detroit from New York. And Red and a fellow named Billy McNeil got together and said, "We're not going." And that was unheard of in the 1950s or 1960 at that time. And they just said, we're not going. And Jack Adams was the general manager of the Red Wings. Uh, Kelly had fallen out of favor with him, and I really don't know the whole reason why. Part of it was uh, Red may have been involved a bit in the in the union stuff. But to make a long story short, Punch Imlac and King Clancy saw the opportunity. A lot of people think it was Clancy's idea that he told Punch, go get him. And uh, the, the interesting part was the Leafs uh, – had heard from Johnny Wilson, who was a player with them, that uh, Jack Adams liked uh, liked Mark Rayome, who was kind of a middle-of-the-road prospect. And Imlac, when Kelly wouldn't play, he got permission to bring Kelly to the, the Royal York Hotel in Toronto downtown and talk to Red. And they offered him a contract, and when Red agreed, they called up Jack Adams and says, Kelly will play for us, we'll give you Mark Rayome and Adams just wanted to get an asset. He figured Kelly was finished and the deal was done. Huh. And I think there's another layer to that. Kelly was playing with an injury and, and they, they didn't, yeah. they didn't understand that it was affecting his play. That's right. That's exactly right. And red would never talk about that, you know, being hurt and not being effective. Like he, that's what players were like in those days. They just soldiered on through it. But Jack Adams, he, he was kind of a, uh, my way or the highway guy and no excuses kind of thing. So he just, uh, he made a mistake, I think, on that one. <laughs> well, and there were a couple of things, a couple of forces at work also in the late 50s, just for everybody's understanding. There were players that were trying to form the First Players Association. And obviously the uh, the ownership did not like that, the various owners across the league. And, and a lot of these guys were traded out. Uh, it was almost, uh, I don't know if, I, if this is the right way to describe it. It was almost like a last last grasp at, at ultimate power by ownership yeah. to dictate, you know, that if you're not going to listen to us, then you're going to pay the price. And, and there were some really good hockey players that were moved because of that. And, and Red Kelly was, was fairly adamant that way too. He was standing up for his own rights and, and that got him to Toronto. That's exactly right. Uh, Ted Lindsay, who was a legend in Detroit was sent to Chicago along with Glenn Hall. And that's how Glenn Hall became a Blackhawk, simply because of the union activities. And they wanted to show these guys, you don't uh, play our way, then you guess what? We're going to send you. And Chicago was, when that deal was made, they were the dregs of the league. They were right at the bottom. So that was punishment, plain and simple. They'd never get away with anything like that. Yeah, Chicago went on to win a Stanley Cup, thanks to some of that. Well, Glenn Hall was the backbone of that team that won in 61. Yeah, so I guess 
just to sum this up, I mean, so you come out of the 40s, you've won all those Stanley Cups, uh, there's a lot of restructuring, there's a lot of uh, young hockey players, really good hockey players produced by the Leaf system, and then there's some astute trading that, that really is the result of, of Punch Imlac being the general manager. And it's not, as we said earlier, not unlike what you would see today, it takes a longer period of time, but the theory is is uh, duplicated uh, many times. I'm thinking of the LA Kings and and how they had uh, two or three rebuilds and, and, and just kept the, the, the core together and, and, and added to yeah. it and then brought in other people and drafted other people. I mean, I think any Stanley Cup team that wins more than one cup, you could see that what the Leafs did is is not done in the same time frame, but done sort of the same today. I think that the same principles they applied, they applied it as they did then. And, and Imlac's uh, blueprint, he tried to do that when he got to Buffalo as well in years later. But he had the advantage of getting the early picks in the draft, which you couldn't do. Uh, in this period that we're talking of. This is Decade by Dynasty presented by DraftKings. Jim Taddy and Rick Cole with you. Up next, we'll dive into these three straight, the three straight Stanley Cup wins in the early 60s by the Toronto Maple Leafs. You're listening to Dynasty by Decade presented by DraftKings. Use promo code THPN for sign-up bonuses and weekly deals. DraftKings, the leader in daily fantasy sports. Dynasty by Decade, presented by DraftKings. Jim Taddy and Rick Cole going over the Leafs Stanley Cup runs in the 60s. The first of three straight starts in 61-62. Now, here is a difference also from today because there's four teams in the playoffs. There's only two rounds, and it goes one against three, two against four. Not the way it's done today, which makes no sense when you look back on it because one against three is actually what should have been a Stanley Cup final, and two against four, you actually get a break for finishing second, which is, you know, that's just the way it was. That was our world back then, and there's obviously things have been corrected since. So in 61-62, the Leafs open against the New York Rangers, win that series four games to two. And again, for historical references, at that time, the Rangers were not a great hockey team. Uh, they used to Detroit, and, and, and the Rangers were sort of switching on a yearly basis to see who was number four. Exactly, uh, and, yeah. And, and so there they are. They're, they're, the Rangers get in, lose 4-2, to two, and then the Leafs win 4-2 over Chicago in the Stanley Cup Finals. Chicago, of course, uh, coming off a recent Stanley Cup win as well. What was that, 60-61, uh, wasn't it? That's right, under Rudy Pillis, the coach yeah. that time. Yeah. Yeah, so, so there you are, the Leafs, and that's their first Stanley Cup win. The season was 70 games long. They were 37, 22, and 11. They had ties back then, too. So so this, was, this wasn't the best Leaf team to win a Stanley Cup, but it was certainly a legitimate. I mean, you win two series, four to two and four to two. That's a pretty good statement. Yeah, and they, they had lost the previous year in 61 in the semifinals to Detroit. And, and who eventually played, faced Chicago in the final. And there wasn't much that they were going to actually change between the 61 team and the 62. Uh, the only real addition they made was Eddie Litzenberger, who had been the captain of the Blackhawks team in 61. And, and he was just a little bit of veteran leadership. But what happened in 62 was those kids started to understand what it took to win. They were learning from Bert Olmsted. Yeah, just also looking at my notes, uh, one of the other differences is is that Don Simmons is the winning goaltender. He comes in for Johnny Bauer, who gets hurt in that series. And so that's that's something that you may not understand. And, and again, I would go back to Don Simmons was not sitting on the bench waiting to go in. He goes in in game five. Yeah. And I don't know if he wore Johnny's 
jersey or not, but he had the same number on. He comes out as number one. Yeah, as, he as, put on Johnny's Johnny's jersey. So that I mean, those are <laughs> those are tight margins back then. Here, oh, give me yeah. your jersey, and he comes out in game five, and then wins game six. So that, I mean that. And Don Simmons was a quality goaltender. Make no mistake about it. He had a, a good long run in Boston uh, on, on some not so great Bruins teams, and and this was a really good backup in, in a time when they didn't really have backups. And he was the the only goalie in the NHL at that point that caught with his right hand. He was left-handed. Ah. And, and, and in fact, he's from my hometown of Port Coburn as well. But uh, we called his name around town was Dippy, and that's what they called him with the Leafs at that time. He had been with Boston. Uh, Stafford Smythe actually hated Ed Chadwick for whatever reason, and they traded Chadwick to Boston for Simmons, and Simmons wouldn't report to the Leafs because they were going to send him to Rochester. But he eventually did report, and then by the time it got around to the end of 61, Simmons was not playing, because, and they had Cesar Maniego. And Cesar right. Maniego was the backup to Bauer at the end of six at the end of the 60, 61 season. But they wanted Simmons to do the job and he got the full time backup job the very next season. And as a key contributor to the Leafs first Stanley Cup run in, in, a, in a pretty good series. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know where they would have been without him. That, that's for sure. I mean, it's a surprising story because you just assume uh, that Johnny's there all the way. And, and there are yeah. a couple of cups where, you know, there was a pretty significant backup uh, helped out. Yeah. And it was Bauer popped. I believe it was a hamstring in that in that fifth game when he, he tried to do a uh, do the splits on a Bobby Hall shot. And I read a, a story where he said he didn't know he could move that fast. And in fact, it turned out he couldn't. <laughs> Okay, so then from there we go to 62-63. And again, this is the best Leaf team of the bunch. This is a 70-game a series, 35-23-12, and 12, and they finished first. They had 82 points. They actually had 85 points the year before because uh, they had more wins, but this this is a first-place team. And so uh, they play Montreal in the first round, first against third. They win 4-1, and then they play Detroit in the next round and win 4-1. So they go 8-2 and two in a playoff run, and, then, yeah. and this is this is the cream of the of the crop. There's there's no question about it. And Johnny Bauer was was the guy all the way through. He he had he had his first two playoff shutouts in that uh, in that series against Montreal. It was just you know he was really really on top of his game. Uh, you just had the comp. The players had the confidence that when he was in there, they could play their game and not worry about what was going on behind the blue line. And that's just exactly what you know what Johnny contributed to them. Yeah, I think if you would go back and if you're describing the Leafs. Uh, as as something that's blossoming. Certainly the first cup, everything is, is wide open. 62-63, uh, I mean, everything is, is as good as it's going to get. There's no yeah. question about that. Everybody's doing exactly what, what they're capable of, and there's no sign of any kind of erosion at all. This is, this is the top of the mountain, isn't it? Oh, yeah. They only lost one guy from the 62 team that really was of any consequence, and that was Bert Olmsted. And, in fact... At the end of that uh, 62 Cup, Olmstead left left Toronto before the next morning. And when they called the team back to take the team photo for 62, Burt wasn't even there. He was already in Saskatchewan. And they they what they did, it wasn't Photoshop then, but they had a stand-in, take the team photo, and then they <laughs> superimposed Burt's head on that 62 team photo. He was gone then, but... George Armstrong was the leader by that time, and a really fine leader he was, too. 
Well, and George shows up in 50-51, and look at the great hockey they got out of that Leaf captain. Oh, Just superb. Yeah, yeah he he uh, uh, he learned his lessons from Ted Kennedy. Ted, Teeter had told me that uh, another Port Coburn guy had uh, we talked a lot in Ted's later years, and he had nothing but just wonderful things to say about George Armstrong. And that there's another difference right there is is the slow transition of power on a franchise yeah. and, and the mentoring. I mean, there's there's mentoring and, and transition that happens today. Everything's just a lot faster, but but that was a, a slower transition because everybody understood George was going to be the captain. He was going to be mm -hmm. the leader here. Yeah, that's exactly right. When they gave him Sil Apps as number 10, that was the clue that he would eventually be the captain of the Maple Leafs. So in that Stanley Cup final against Detroit, they went 4-2, 4-2, lose 3-2, win 4-2, and 3-1. I mean, that, that also describes how the Leafs would play back then. This was a team, um, I, I would always equate them to similar to the Islanders when they had their great run. This was a team that was tough to play against and had all the physical elements defensively airtight and the goaltending was airtight. I mean, I just can't think of a, a, any other superlatives to throw in there. You were not going to beat the Leafs, and they were not going to beat themselves. And that, Jim, is a real key. They never did beat themselves, partially because I think Imlac just would not hear of anybody slacking off or not doing what he was supposed to do. You didn't play in the NHL if you didn't do your job. And those guys, to a man, every one of them did their job. Even Carl Brewer that had the run-ins with Imlac constantly, he played the game the way Imlac wanted it played. Yeah, absolutely. And he was, Carl Brewer, I think, is somewhat underrated. He was a unique defenseman. He had the uh, the puck handling skills of any of the great puck movers, Doug Harvey, Bobby Orr. I mean, he had that ability. He could rush that puck, and, and there weren't that many guys that could do that back then. Well, that, that, that was not part of the defensive game in those days. If Carl Brewer had come along, you know, in his peak in the 70s or 80s, they probably would have been talking about him as, you know, a, a rival to Bobby Orr because he was probably the most – one of the most intelligent guys, I think, that played played for the Leafs in all those years. Well, and let's cut back to Red Kelly. Uh, when Red Kelly was in Detroit, he was a Norris Trophy-winning defenseman. He had that puck-moving skill. And when he got to the Leafs, they converted him into a center. I mean, that, there's another punch him lack move that you go, what? And, and that, again, uh, I read that t uh, King Clancy was a guy that kind of told Punch, you know, you could put Kelly in the middle with Mahovlich, and they all clicked, just I guarantee it. And it was whoever thought of it, it was a stroke of genius. Absolutely. So let's go to the third straight Stanley Cup win, 63-64. They finished third. And you can tell some of the luster is starting to wear here. 70 games, 33 wins, 25 losses, 12 ties, 78 points. That's their lowest point total in the three-year run. They meet Montreal in the first round. Montreal was first. Remember that. And when you're talking about the 60s, uh, there's a bookend of Chicago at the start and Boston at the end. And the rest is all Toronto, Montreal. You bet. If yep. Toronto didn't win the cup, Montreal did. So that's an impressive first round win over Montreal. It took seven games and then the most dramatic of all, seven games against Detroit, where Detroit had a 3-2 series lead and looked like they were going to win it in six on home ice. And then, as folklore dictates, Bobby Bond <laughs> carried off the ice in a stretcher with a 
a broken bone in his foot, a broken leg, whatever you want to describe it. Many books will, will tell you his, he, his leg was almost amputated. I mean, this is, this is a great story. And then he comes back on the ice in overtime and banks one off Al Langwa, junior Langwa that beat Sachuk and, and that's the overtime winner. Yeah, Bob Bobby talks about that, and it, it was really kind of strange because he got the shot from Howe, and it hurt his, his ankle, but he kept playing about two or three shifts. And then he went into the corner, and he was going to check, I think, a guy named Andre Pronovo in right. the third period, and he said, I heard something pop in my foot, and down I went, and it couldn't put any any weight on it. So they brought the stretcher out. They took him off, and when he got into the dressing, the Leafs had two doctors there. They both looked at it, and they said, if we tape it up and freeze it, you can play because we don't think you can wreck it any more than you already have. Bob a- said, yeah, he didn't even, he wasn't even on the bench. He was still getting taped up when the overtime started. That is a crazy story. Just for historic purposes, Andre Pronovo is the grandfather of Anthony Manta. That's so that, right. that's, yeah. that's how far back we're going. <laughs> <laughs> and this is ancient history, but yeah, I can still see the shot though. goes off somehow glances off junior Langwa and goes high past Sachuk into the net. And, and, uh, and the next game was, was a no brainer. They, they won four, nothing on gardens ice. And, and there is three Stanley cups in a row, but this was a team that, that sputtered during the regular season. In fact, a major trade happened with, with Duff and Nevin going to the Rangers and, and Bathgate and McKinney coming back. That was, that was a, a startling trade. That that was completely a shock. There had been kind of rumors going around that they were going to trade Dick Duff for Vic Hadfield, but that was the only real. Nobody dreamed that they would give up, the Rangers would give up Andy Bathgate. And a lot of people think that the Leafs' decline started right there because they sent the two young defensemen, Sealing and Brown, to the Rangers in that trade. But uh, there's no question that Bathgate, and McKenney played the major role in the, in that 64 cup. Although if you talk to Dick Duff today, and I talked to Bob Nevin about it as well about this trade, and they both said that if that trade had not been made, the Maple Leafs would have won the cup in 65 and 66 and 67. They both felt strongly that if that team had been left to stay together, they would have had a run that would have been unparalleled. Yeah, just so to, because I remember this this trade as well, uh, and I I knew Bob Bob Nevin fairly well, and I've talked mm-hmm. to Duffy quite a bit. Bob Nevin and I golfed a lot at the Summit in Richmond Hill. Oh yeah, um, and, and so I remember this as a kid, and, and these things when you're really young and they happen, and it's startling. You years later, you're fortunate enough to talk to the people involved. This was a Saturday afternoon, and this was after the morning skate, and while well, everybody's gone to their hotel or home to have their nap. Uh, I know that Bob Nevin got uh, called. I think it was Clancy who called him to tell it him was. what what had happened. And, and Duffy would have been the same. They're they're getting ready to play the Rangers that night. So so during the course of the afternoon, they get told they're they've been moved. And so instead of going to their normal dressing room, they have to go to the one across the hall. And and I mean this is and, and you know. I don't know how we knew this because there weren't there weren't supper hour sports casts on on a Saturday uh, it, back then like there are now. So I don't know how we knew this, but but uh, talk about buzz when you're turning on the hockey night in Canada game and, and two of your favorite Leafs are now wearing Ranger uniforms. That was uh, that was certainly noteworthy, wasn't it? It, it? it was a shock. I was 
I, I grew up in a little hamlet called Lowbanks Long Lake Erie, 200 people. We had a small Boy Scout troop, and we were having on that Saturday our yearly Boy Scout banquet with all 11 of us. And uh, the next door, one of the guys lived next door to where we were having it at the fire hall, and he ran over to see the score of the hockey game when it came on. And he came back from his house, and he knew that Dick Duff was my favorite player. And he came to me and he said, the least traded Dick Duff today. And I almost threw up the whole meal right then and there. <laughs> it was such a shock. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> Bob Nevin goes on to be the captain of the Rangers, which is a, a very mm -hmm. honorable position. And Dick Duff, uh, you know, after he left the Rangers to Montreal, was was absolutely poisoned in, in the playoffs against anybody he played. His his playoff uh, scoring is, is phenomenal. I mean, I think that's what got him into the Hockey Hall of Fame. So you could see that, you know, while they're, you know, the Leafs had to do what they had to do to win that, that third straight cup, that I would concur with what the players said. Had they left them alone, maybe they don't win the cup in 63-64. We don't know that, but they certainly... You know, when Montreal took over for the next two years after the Leafs run ends, uh, you know, I, I could be talked into the Leafs winning any one of those two cups. Well, and that's that's right. That what happened in the next two years after that '64 Cup was that uh, McKenney uh, basically didn't co contribute anything, while Dick Duff was helping Montreal win those cups, and Andy Bathgate was at his best before date had long since gone by, and he ends up being traded to Detroit in the big deal that. Brings Marcel Pornovo to the Leafs, which sets yeah. up the '67 Cup. Yes, I know. There's and and at this point, there's a lot of back and forth between Toronto and Detroit in, in terms of of moving players around. It you know, and, and probably one of the untold stories of the '60s would be the number of times Detroit got in the Stanley Cup final and lost. And and they were just, I mean, that that just goes to show you the power of of how great Gordy Howe and Alex Delvecchio were, because those rosters they had were were fairly thin. Uh, and they did, and they moved Sachuk out, which is a, a a major contribution to the Leafs on a waiver claim of all things in '64 '65 when they they changed that rule that now you can dress a backup goaltender for whatever reason. Yeah. Detroit lets Sachuk go and elevates Roger Crozier, who was very very good but their backup situation wasn't so good. And the Leafs was. Yeah. And, and actually in that uh, acquisition of Terry Sawchuk, the guy that Imlac actually had his eye on to acquire in that waiver draft of whatever, however you want to term it was not Terry Sawchuk. Imlac's plan was to get Gump Worsley, <laughs> but Sawchuk became available. And of course, Imlac, just had the highest esteem for Terry Sawchuk. And there was some machinations by Montreal to keep Worsley away from Toronto. But Imlac grabbed Sawchuk, and, of course, that set up that 67 Cup as well. Well, and I might stand corrected, but I know that Emil Francis at some point wanted Sawchuk in New York and eventually got him. But I yeah. think he wanted him earlier in the decade, didn't he? he? He did. In fact, it was, you know, Terry had gone to Boston and then – back to Detroit when he had the problems in Boston with the mononucleosis and, and uh, as they put it, some nervous issues. And uh, he came back to Detroit, and there were several teams that Leafs had tried to get Terry too, but everybody kind of had the feeling that Sawchuk wouldn't leave Detroit again. And I think that's what shot him down going to New York. But Imlac, he his his formula was bring in the old, those old guys to augment the young guys we already got. And it, it worked. And Sacha and Bauer were the perfect pair. 
Absolutely. They're totally different guys. Yeah. But but in terms of what they did on the ice, they were they really supported each other in terms of when, when one wasn't there, the other guy just stepped in. And I mean, you're talking about two number one goalies, basically, is what they had. Mm-hmm. And and they're veteran guys who weren't capable of doing what you did in the 60s and 70s. 60s especially was playing almost every game. They split the season almost down the middle, and you, he got the best out of both of them. Okay, up next, we're going to deal with the 1967 Stanley Cup win by the Leafs and then look back over the whole period of dynasty, I guess, dynasty moments by the Leafs in the 60s. It was a fun time, and it was the end of the original six. This is Decade by Dynasty, presented by DraftKings. Jim Taddy and Rick Cole with you. You're listening to Dynasty by Decade, presented by DraftKings, the leader in daily fantasy sports. Use promo code THPN at sign-up for exclusive offers. Dynasty by Decade, presented by DraftKings. Jim Taddy and Rick Cole with you going over the last Stanley Cup win by the Leafs in 1967. Unless you're listening to this months from now, which could be in the summer, and maybe they've ended the streak. But we don't know that as we're recording this. So 66-67 is the last year of the original six. 70 games, 32 wins, 27 losses, 11 ties, 75 points, good enough for third. Um, this was, I, I, Rick, I always refer to this as like a greatest hits album, this team, because there was a lot of guys brought in to patch up certain situations. And let's be honest, everybody knew that the hockey world was going to change right after this Stanley Cup because there was going to be an expansion draft. The league would double from 6 to 12. This was like a last call, wasn't it? It was, and it was uh, those of us that uh, were following it, we were hoping that uh, if you were a Leaf fan, your team was going to get that last 16 Stanley Cup. And it was Canada's centennial year, 1967, and we desperately wanted that Stanley Cup in Canada for 1967. And Everybody thought it was going to be Montreal that would turn the trick if it was going to be a Canadian team. Everybody thought the Leafs were done. They were old. They were injury prone. Uh, guys like Bauer and Sawchuck were supposed to be on their last legs. But they did have some kids that were coming along, like Ronnie Ellis, Britt Selby, Pete Stemkowski, Jim Pappen. Uh, but it was the old guys that actually did it for him in, in the playoffs. Yeah, so specifically on the blue line, Pronovo uh, from Detroit, Larry Hillman, who had been uh, bounced around, made significant contributions on the blue line. Carl Brewer is long gone. Uh, you, you mentioned the kids that are they're doing a nice job, and the veterans uh, pulled it all together. But this team had some some moments where it went south. I recall a, a ten game losing skid that where everybody just sort of bailed out. And Montreal, you mentioned them, had won the last two Stanley Cups. So you know, I don't think many people were were counting on the Leafs winning this cup and you said at the centennial year so i mean this is another great moment in canadian history where you have the country celebrating 100 years of existence and two canadian teams battling for the stanley cup it, it couldn't have got any better we all just thought that this was the best it could ever be and it's always going to be good like this 
Yeah, and I think there's a romantic connection to this team yeah. uh, because of what happened after. But also, it, you know, I think everybody understood, uh, based on what had happened with the three Stanley Cup wins earlier in the 60s, that whatever was going to happen next was going to be a reset. I don't think people could have predicted the, the, the gloom that would have followed this franchise for a number of years after. And, I mean, there were massive departures based on that expansion draft. But this team has, if, if you were around at the time and you watched it play, it tugged at your heartstrings didn't it? Uh, it did. Well, there were so many, many great stories. Bauer playing through the injury, Sawchuck's goaltending in that 67 playoffs. Uh, I have not yet seen anybody who has played goal as well as that in my life before or since. That was the best goalkeeping I think you would ever see by anybody. Uh, the fact that they had a 10-game losing streak at midseason Imlac ends up in the hospital. King Clancy takes over as coach at the end of the losing streak, and they go on a 10-game unbeaten streak. Yeah, and that, that really – so that showed you the highs and the lows right there. Yeah. It was an all-or-nothing premise. That's exactly what it was. And uh, just the way that Imlac kept juggling the lineup, juggling the lines, he inserted guys in. There were guys like Larry Jeffrey who gave 100% but his knees were basically mush by that time. and But they still, they gave it everything they had. In fact, Jeffrey, I don't think, got into any games in the finals because his knee had gone bad. Well, you, you talked about the Sawchuck uh, performance. So this happens in game five against Chicago and uh, goes on into game six against Chicago. I mean, he's one of the, the major reasons why they, they got into the final in the first place. And he was vintage. Terry Sachuk. I remember watching that game as a kid and not understanding what he was capable of. And uh, he was a piece of plywood in, the, in both those games. He he was, he was unbeatable. The, the one save uh, he made when Bobby Hull hit him with the slap shot in the semifinals and hit the shoulder. I thought, I thought he was done then. I didn't know who Toronto was going to have in goal because Bauer was hurting and then Sachuk went down. But if you remember the video, if you've ever seen the, the tapes of those games, and he kind of drags himself to his feet as yeah. if he's on his last legs, and then he stands on his head for the rest of that game. Uh, craziness, really. And, and so, you know, again, just to, to remind everybody, uh, Bobby Hull had the slap shot, the warped stick blade, uh, and this was, uh, there was no other shot that was equal. Maybe Dennis Hull, but not anywhere near as accurate. But Bobby Hull, would, when yeah. he wound up, everybody would gasp because you, you just didn't know. This, there was nothing like it. And, and if it hit you, you paid the price. And if it didn't hit you, it was in the net. I mean, this, this was, uh, you know, my images of Bobby Hull back then, uh, still very, very uh, vivid. A guy who could take the puck behind his own goal and skate through it. This was a, a marvelous skater. I mean, mm -hmm. you want to talk about a unique hockey player, marvelous skater, a shot that would just go through a, a, a piece of plywood. And if it didn't, it, it hurt you. Uh, he was a game breaker like, like no other at the time. Terry Sawchuk, I remember after that series, there were people that uh, there were interviews and he had bruises on his legs where the puck hit his pads and bruised him on the shin through his legs. That's just how hard Bobby Hall shot that puck. And I, again, you would have thought that sometimes if you were hit by those, it's a miracle nobody was killed in, a, in an era where the goaltenders didn't all wear masks. And again, another reminder, uh, you know, the Leafs finished third. So Chicago is first in the league. <laughs> they beat them in, in six games, four to two. They win the Stanley Cup against Montreal, four to two. And, and these are wacky scores. Montreal wins the opener six, two. 
The Leafs then win 3 nothing and 3-2 in double overtime and then lose 6-2 and then win 4-1 to take a 3-2 series lead and then win 3-1. And if you're of a certain vintage, you will always remember the George Armstrong into the empty net goal that was won on a face-off, Alan Stanley against Jean Beliveau. And, and Punch put all the old guys out there. Polford was out there. Uh, I think Keon might have been out there at the time. But I remember Armstrong getting that puck, getting the center ice, and George very conscientious because he would have been fined 100 bucks if he'd iced it. He got over center ice and dumped it into the into the Montreal net. Yeah, empty net that Stanley took the face off and, and Montreal fans are still arguing that he interfered with, with Belleville <laughs> yeah. in, in the face off dot. <laughs> and then, you know, punch was known for sometimes starting all defensemen, five defensemen, five defensemen didn't shy away from having the defenseman take a face off as, as he did with Alan Stanley with the Stanley cup on the line. That, that's a two, one game at that point. I mean, there, when you look back on it, I guess we could do that now looking back on it. There's, there's a fair bit of, uh, innovative thinking that goes into what made the Leafs what they were at that time. And not all of it is player acquisition. It's how people were used. It's, it's, uh, you know, game management situations. It's understanding, you know, if you get some, some veteran from another team that, that he has this to give and you had a hole that was exactly that size. It really is intriguing, isn't it? Uh, it was like a big jigsaw puzzle, the way Punch put it together and how he used the guys. Punch loved to have the defensemen take the face-offs because he didn't really care about winning or losing a face-off. What he cared about is taking out the centerman as soon as the puck was dropped because the rules were different in those days. And face-off interference actually came in a little more near the end of this 1960s era. But you could basically, as soon as the puck was dropped, Bobby Bond taking the draw would tie a guy up with his low center of gravity you couldn't get away from him yeah and you know they had the ultimate in terms of there's no names on jerseys we keep referring back <laughs> yeah. to how it was um, as soon as you saw the guy skate you didn't even have to look at his number you knew exactly who he was and what he was going to do and that was the original six as we knew it you would apply that to literally every team and in fact when when somebody got called up in the visiting team from the farm and you saw him out in the ice you immediately tried to figure out who he was and, and what he could do because i mean you know if it, i don't know i can't think of a guy but but whoever it was was noticeable because he hadn't been there before and the other thing about the original six i will say uh, is that you when you watched it as a kid there was this feeling that uh, you were watching the best that anybody could give you on a nightly basis because if they didn't do that, they wouldn't be on the team much longer. There was always uh, 20 guys in the minors ready to take your job. I remember Ed Chadwick talking about that, just saying that, you know, you did what you had to do. Uh, he never got any coaching as far as goaltending in the NHL. His coaching and goaltending came before then. In the NHL, all he was told is stop the puck or you'll stop it in Rochester. Well, that's that's another difference between now and then. Also, yeah. is you know, here's the job. You better do it right, or somebody else will get the job. And in fact, for just to sort of make everybody understand, they go from six to twelve teams. You might want to ask yourself where all those players came from because they doubled the size of the league. But yeah. where they all came from was the American Hockey League. Exactly. They all. In fact, Dick Duff told me. I asked him specifically about this, and he said that. None of the guys wanted to go in the expansion because even after they expanded, they looked at the Western division like a minor league, like the AHL, but they were making NHL money, which kind of cushioned the blow. 
Well, and I would agree with you. And I think you can remember also that when an original six team played an expansion team, this is something that we've seen. We see all the time now. The expansion team did not have the talent that the original six team had in most cases. And so the game changed. It went from an art form to a dump and chase. Get to the center, throw it in. I mean, this was not done in the original six unless you were unless you were number six. I, I think the worst team in the league might have done that on occasion, but but this wasn't. The, these teams were they they played artful hockey, if you were. There was a lot of skill. There was a lot of passing. Nobody gave the puck away because you'd end up in the minors. But clearly, the whole game changed uh, after the Leafs won that Stanley Cup. I, I think one of the things that really changed, and it continues to this day, was how the teams were coached. In six, in before expansion, the teams co- were coached to win the games. When the expansion teams come in, those teams weren't coached to win. They were coached not to lose. Right. Minimize your chances of losing, and you might have a chance. And that that's what happens today. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, that's why the tie is no longer in existence because because they really drove that one into the ground. I think you'll recall that when yeah. an expansion team played, if it was tied with 10 minutes to go, you weren't going to see much hockey the rest of the game because they were just hanging on and icing the puck, and it wasn't pretty to watch, I got to say. At, uh, those games weren't. They they were awful games. If you read any of the newspaper reports from 1967, especially when a team like Oakland Seals came in, uh, they talked about everything but the game because it wasn't anything worth talking about as far as the okay. game went. Yeah, so let's wrap this up by uh, by going over. First, first we're going to do this in two parts. We're going to go back over memories from those Stanley Cup wins, and, and then uh, we'll talk about what happens next for the Leafs after 1967. But looking back on it, uh, clearly, you know, there's, there's a lot of great players. And, and I think you and I are fortunate enough to have been able to meet these guys over the years and, and have a coffee with them. And, and, you know, I always say that those guys, anybody who played in the original six is owed a, a, just a huge amount of gratitude by everybody because they were the builders. The players built that game. There's no question about that. And to a man, they're all very nice um, it's almost like running into a, an, an older uncle that you just absolutely love. Because, oh yeah. You know, these guys were all very humble and, and nice and, and, and happy to see you, even though they'd never met you before. That's how they were. But for me, when I look back on it, in terms of a hockey player, Dave Keon for me was without a doubt, the best player they had. And, uh, a guy who may have been underappreciated, but, but he, there was no other Dave Keon in the NHL. He was, he was, well, he's been voted the best player of all time for the Maple Leafs, and quite deservedly so. He was the leader on that team, if not by the rah-rah stuff, just by example. He went about his job. He did it. He did it without complaining. He did it without fanfare. He just went out and played the game of hockey exactly the way that game should, should be played. Yeah, absolutely. The stunning hockey player. Uh, when you look back on it, what do you think of Rick? Well, a, a couple things. Being an old goaltender, the goalkeeping that the Leafs had in those Stanley Cup runs, Johnny Bauer through the the first three, and then Sawchuck and Bauer in 67, that stood out. Uh, in the first two Cups, my favorite player had always been Dick Duff. He got the winning goal in 62. Uh, he started the series, the playoffs off in 60, uh, 63 with the two goals in the beginning of the game to set a record. and And it was the... I guess guys like him, the money players that came through when the chips were down, that struck me as something that really uh, 
just moved me the way those guys played in crucial games. They just, I mean, I don't think anybody did, but they had no passengers. Uh, they had uh, full value from everybody. Uh, it was a unique time. Uh, Punch could do what he did, and, and it worked then. Uh, to do that years later would have been not very good. I mean, that was the all, that was sort of the last of that um, era where you could dictate uh, terms to people and, and still have them perform well. Uh, the money hadn't showed up. I mean, quite frankly, all those guys were in some way, shape, or form financially abused, but that's the way the world was then. Yeah. And, and I think they all, uh, uh, you know, Aside from all of that, they appreciated their their part in history. And and like I said before, these guys, any one of those guys, unfortunately, there's not as many around now. But if you ever saw them and, and said hi to them, you would enjoy the following 15 minutes for sure. Those guys, I had been lucky enough to meet a lot of the guys. And they all appreciate uh, what they had and what they went through. And and you can tell that it's something that they they treasure. Uh, to listen to Bobby Bond talk about those years, it, it almost brings a tear to your eye because he does it with such reverence. Those times are special. Ted Kennedy, when you talk to him about the Maple Leafs, and it, it was like you were something special in Canada then, and you had to carry yourself in a certain way. Yeah, I would agree with that. You know, and in spite of all the, the negatives that were discovered years later and corrected, by the way, along the way, uh, I think they understood the privilege. And, and that that's that's an important thing to to let everybody understand. They they did not take anything for granted. These were humble family guys. Um, yes. And, you know, and, and just just regular guys that had this God-given skill and talent, and they appreciated it. They, they, nobody ever abused that that uh, that privilege that they had. They were they were very appreciative. It's one thing that struck me when later in life I I, I had the opportunity to go to some of the Leafs alumni dinners with Ted Kennedy and Ed Chadwick, and and I'd always when I played, you know, there was a certain type of guy that was in a hockey dressing room. And when I got there and sat down and had a few drinks with these guys and a meal and, and they were treating me like an equal because I was friends with Ted Kennedy. And I, the one thing I kept saying to myself was, geez, these guys are just like the guys I played with all my life, except they were way better players, but they were really good guys. Yeah, that's that's exactly the way to sum it up. They were great guys. There's no question about that. So as our final bit here, uh, and this is painful. <laughs> <laughs> and and the drop-off <laughs> happens quite fast after the Stanley Cup win. Uh, so they win the Stanley Cup, and, and the next year they're out. They miss the playoffs, which has been done many times since. But, you know, there's the expansion, which is basically, uh, without, uh, I guess, sugarcoating it, a way for six owners in a league to double its its income overnight. There's expansion fees, which are paltry by today's standard. But, but I mean, this was before there was any kind of significant TV money of any nature. And so this was, this was a cash grab in, in, in some respects, maybe in all respects. And, and part of the cash grab is, is what happens to the Leafs. And they go from, uh, I guess, patching a lot of holes and winning a Stanley cup to not being a power at all. The, the drop-off is significant the next year. The, what happened to the Leafs, uh, there were two things. Uh, they lost a lot of players in expansion and they lost the depth of the organization. The Leafs at one time had, I think, four 
four farm teams. If you count the teams that they had relationships with in the Eastern League uh, and the International League. And what happened? They sold off the Rochester Americans a couple years before. And part of the, the sale terms were that the owners who uh, bought Rochester gave Stafford Smythe 500 grand, but Stafford Smythe had to give them the guarantee they would always have 19 professional hockey players at their disposal. So when the expansion draft came, the Leafs were filling in with players so that Rochester would keep their quota of 19 because if they got below 19, Stafford Smythe had to pay them 50 grand a guy. And he didn't want to lose the money. They sold off a Western uh, Hockey League uh, farm team. They had team in the Central League. Well, all those teams left, and the the uh, Leafs had no depth after 1967. Yeah, and the other thing that happens is uh, you know, there's a couple of things that when you go through the 70s that everybody had to deal with. Uh, the the draft shows up, and so the territorial exemptions leave, which yep. meant the Leafs had the first call on the two best players in Ontario, as Montreal had the two best in Quebec. And so that advantage for both those teams dissipates, the draft levels the playing field, and the ownership structure of the Leafs changes. Con Smythe leaves, Stafford Smythe and Harold Ballard uh, take over, and eventually Harold Ballard took over. And there was also a, a struggle by anybody who was part of an original six ownership in the 60s, in the 70s, the WHA shows up. Players have their first bona fide option. And that, uh, yeah. dic- what's the word I'm looking for? That total control that, that an owner would have had in the past dissipates. There's a big chunk taken out of that. And and in the Leafs case, there was some me or, the, or take the high road. And, and a lot of the players took the high road. That That's right. Harold, with Harold Ballard, completely discounted the World Hockey Association. Uh, Jim Gregory told me that the 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 biggest one of the biggest things that hurt the Leafs was that they they couldn't convince Bernie Perrant to stay with them, and Ballard just probably could have kept Bernie with another twenty five grand a year. And who knows what would have happened if Bernie Perrant had ended up being very happy in Toronto and staying. The Flyers never would have been the Flyers, but the Leafs might have been something more than what they ended up being. I mean, that after the WHA came, who was the Leaf goalie that first year? Ron Lowe? Yeah, they, they just <laughs> went through. Um, they, they went through a lot of young players. Yeah. And they burned a lot of them because they just, they, sure. they, they, this was the opposite of what we were describing earlier, where it was a methodical build. Now it was a fire drill and it just blew up. It didn't work for them at all. And disaster ensued. That's for sure. There were moments, you know, there's some pretty good Daryl Sittler, Lanny McDonald teams there with Borey, the Salming, and Mike yep. Palmatier and, and Ian Turnbull. There was, there was a great core there, but it just, it couldn't get to the finals. It, it just, it couldn't get the, couldn't get the job done. And they just didn't have the depth to get it done. Uh, other teams were good at drafting lower in the draft and, and bringing it guys who were third, fourth round picks. And the Leafs didn't have a lot of guys like that. In uh, they had the good ones. Settler and McDonald were better than most. Errol Thompson turned out to be a surprise because yeah. he started as a defenseman and scored forty goals. Yeah, but unfortunately, <laughs> you know, what makes you great sometimes makes you not so great. Yeah. And so when you cut to the late 70s, punch comes back. Harold is there. Lanny McDonald is exited out. And and that really is the setup for uh, what I want to describe as, as just really tough times in the 80s. Uh, the 80s were just a, it was a wasteland for, for Leaf fans. You know, you had some nice things that happened. Wendell Clark. 
uh, came, you know, was uh, a typical Leaf, uh, a quintessential Leaf, but uh, they had no supporting cast at all. And Harold Ballard thought he knew enough about hockey to run a hockey team. I mean, when you, uh, you know, Gord Stellick's a great guy, but he wasn't ready to be an NHL GM when the job was thrust upon him. Well, yeah, it's just it's it's sad but comical as to what happens. But that <laughs> I think if you went through any franchise and picked their darkest moment, you would realize the circus element of, of bad decisions that gets them there. As as it is when you win, it's the reverse equation. When you win, and we we you know we can look back on this. It's like uh, having an actor show up in a movie at the right time because you know that it's worked. So you're looking back at it that way. When disaster strikes, it's just a series of the wrong people in the wrong spot repeatedly happening time after time until you've got nothing left, really. I think the thing that kind of epitomized what happened with the Leafs was the the Roger Nielsen incident when he was fired and then they were going to bring him back and they brought him back. And Harold Ballard asked Roger Nielsen to wear a paper bag over his head when he walked out from the alleyway behind the bench so that it would be a big surprise to everyone who was coaching the Leafs. And Roger, to his credit, told Harold that the paper bag could go somewhere where it probably wouldn't fit. But uh... <laughs> Part of the comedy of, of the 70s and the <laughs> yeah. Ballard regime, which went on. Yeah. Anyway, Rick, I really enjoyed the conversation. Oh, this is great. We could easily do this uh, on a weekly basis and just pick a year and, and go at it. it. It's been fun. Yeah, I've, I've enjoyed it. Anytime I can talk old-time Leafs, I'm in heaven. Well, I want to thank everybody for listening. Jim Taddy here from Leaf Sky. Rick Cole from 50 Years Ago in Hockey. Thanks for joining us on Dynasty by Decade, presented by DraftKings on the Hockey Podcast Network.